What events transformed your life? Sometimes our greatest defining moments are born out of tremendous personal tragedy. In this episode, Ron Garber, attorney and co-founder of the AI Foundation, discusses how the death of his daughter led to his fight against the rare disease. Welcome to the show, Ron. How are you? Oh, bam. Thanks so much for having me. I'm great. Good, good. For everyone who's watching, Ron is an emergency and acquisition lawyer who now works for one of the world's largest medical device companies. And recently, Ron, you were named, I think, 40 under 40, which in our profession is, is kind of a big deal. So congratulations on that. Thank you. But in addition to being, you know, a lawyer, you also play basketball at the University of Michigan, is it? Yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm six foot nine, which you can't tell uh, by my current camera shot. But yeah, I, I played basketball or sort of sat the bench on the basketball team for the University of Michigan and then played overseas in Israel for a year after uh, college. So it's lawyer meets basketball pro or basketball pro meets lawyer, whichever one, but you're, you're quite accomplished. And, and the most recent thing that you've been working on has been the Yaya Foundation. Now tell the audience what the Yaya Foundation is and how it came to be. Sure. Yeah, thanks, A.B. Um, so the Yaya Foundation for 4-H Leukodystrophy is a, is a patient group that represents patients and families affected by an ultra rare disease called 4-H leukodystrophy. Um, my wife, June, and my daughter, Yaya, had 4-H leukodystrophy. And during her life, we decided we need to do something about this and we can talk more about her life and our life together and, and why we felt that way. But, um, but what, what we do is fight for patients and families affected by the disease. And we're the only organization in the world that does that. Um, in fact, when our daughter Yaya was alive, we, we couldn't believe that there wasn't someone else doing that. And, and so mm -hmm. we, we decided to do it ourselves. And, and um, uh, so, so we support research and we're working with labs all over the world in a really, I think, cool and innovative way to accelerate their work to learn more about the disease and, and develop therapies that will help kids that are affected by it. And also providing educational and emotional support to families because when you get a diagnosis like this in your family, um, there's so little information about there. Uh, there's, there, it's hard to find, your doctors don't know about the disease, you have to learn about it. And um, so being, so, so having there being a way to educate families that are affected, we think is really, really important. So tell me a little bit about what the disease actually is, because I know you said it's a rare disease, which means most of us have probably never heard about it. So, so what, what is it actually? Sure, yeah, no one's ever heard of it, including, including most doctors and most neurologists and geneticists. Um, but but um, 4-H, also, it's also called pol-R3-related leukodystrophy. Um, you know, it, is, it even has a weird sounding name, you know, it, it's, it's um, so it's, it's not very approachable, but it's a genetic neurological disease that, mm -hmm. uh, that typically presents in kids, small kids, and it, uh, it inhibits the body's ability to develop myelin, which is a really important part 
of the brain and allows neurological signals to transmit from the brain to different parts of the body. And the disease burden is really, really heavy. Um, it, it presents often in kids who, who were otherwise sort of developing normally and doing just fine. So it comes completely out of the blue, um, yeah. it did for us and, and, um, you know, totally upends this kid's life and, and her or his parents' lives. And, and, it, and then it's a progressive disease. It's a, it gets worse over time. Um, it's, it's really challenging because it gets worse at different rates and in different ways for different kids um, mm -hmm. over time. But, you know, over time, kids who may have been able to talk and walk and sort of otherwise were developing just fine, uh, start to lose those abilities. They lose their abilities to move around, um, to talk, to walk, yeah. and and ultimately to coordinate swallow. And and that's ultimately what causes really really significant problems for kids. Kids lose the ability to to swallow and so to feed themselves. Um, mm -hmm. So you need we need feeding support and feeding tubes, and and then ultimately to manage sort of the you know, the secretions in, in our, um, in our sort of ear, nose and throat that we all have saliva and whatnot. And, and so that ultimately leads to lung damage. And, and so the, the, the and pneumonia and the disease is ultimately fatal as a result. And kids, you know, pass away anywhere from really, really young, like, um, yeah. like our daughter Yaya to, to their sort of teenage years or even into their twenties. But you know, otherwise normally developing kids just suffer this slide um, and, and ultimately pass away from the disease. So Ron, as you know, this show is about defining moments. So I want to go there because you were, as I often say, you were minding your business, right? You were working as a lawyer, happily married, you know, got pregnant, had this little girl, and then what happened? Yeah, so, um, yeah, I love the defining moments theme because in, in so many ways, our life with, with Yaya has been the defining moment, you know, of at least my adult life. Um, so, you know, June and I both come from really, really tight families. We were so excited to, you know, be having our first child and, you know, not, not the kind of parents who are like, should we have kids? Should we not? Like we got, we got married and we were, and we were ready to go and really excited about it. And when June got pregnant with Yaya, everything was, everything was fine. And mm -hmm. when she was born, everything was normal. And I just, I remembered sitting in the hospital the morning before we were going home and lying in, in the hospital bed. I think June was asleep and, and Yaya was laying down on my stomach and I just felt like the king of the world, you know? And I still have yeah. this photo that, um, uh, you know, it was just, it was the, one of the happiest moments of my life. And and we went home and kind of the first, full, our first month together was, you know, the just the, the kind of chaotic and crazy, but also amazing, you know, time as mm -hmm. a family with a newborn. and. And then at um, when she was six weeks old, and I still remember this so clearly, um, I was standing in the kitchen and I, you know, I got an email ding on my phone and it was my like weekly newsletter that, that comes every week to tell me, you know, this week your baby should be doing this and this. And, um, 
you know, I, for some reason, it really struck me that smiling was on this list. And, mm. and mm. Um, because Yaya wasn't smiling. And he, even though, you know, baby smile at six weeks, and this was the six week email, it, you know, wasn't like she was late. But, you know, maybe, maybe we had a sense that that something was perhaps wrong, because it, it struck me so hard. And, and uh, June told me later, she had the exact same feeling when she got, you know, whatever newsletter she receives. And from that time was on, that because both of you hadn't noticed that she hadn't smiled. We hadn't, we hadn't said anything about it. It wasn't a, we had no level of concern at all. Everything yeah. seemed fine. We, we didn't have a comparison point, you know, she was our first. And so we didn't, right. we didn't uh, know well enough that something was wrong. Like now, you know, her little brother is two years old and he was smiling at like four weeks. And so, yeah. you know, maybe with a more experience we would have known, but, but I, you know, I don't know why it's, it hit me so hard, but, but it did. And, yeah. and over the next, you know, and, and then we really went into a year long sort of, you know, first concern, um, you know, we, it's not like we got this email and we were devastated and cause we were just like, huh, that's really unusual. That's, that's mm -hmm. scary. And, and we talked to our doctor about it and, mm -hmm. and, you know, we went through this period of being concerned, but no one else being concerned. You know, our, our doctor said, ah, I'm, I think she said, I'm 90% not worried, you know, which was okay. really scary for us. 10% is a lot when, when you're talking about your, your baby. And, and with your first child, you don't have a measure, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so we take the doctor's word. And, and so we ask, should we be seeing specialists? Should we do something? No, let's wait a month. Let's see. And you know, concern then turned to fear because Yaya's condition became worse and we still didn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it just sort of kept, it kept gradually getting worse for it to, to really ultimately despair. Um, but d during those first couple of months, you know, we, and, and I, you know, I tell these stories, it's, first of all, it's really hard for me to go to these places sort of emotionally, yeah, I've kind of yeah, built walls around them. And, and I also, I don't want anyone to feel bad for us or me or my family or, or even Yaya, especially Yaya. And, um, but I think our stories are really representative of what a lot of families affected by our disease go through. And I think what a lot yeah. of families affected by rare disease in general go through. And so, you know, I hope that sharing them sort of speaks to the burden of of these diseases and why we've decided to do something about it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when when we were at the beginning, when sort of the doctors were telling us, let's just wait and see, you know, kids don't all develop at the same rate. And so hopefully things will get better. Um, you know, we were we were living a normal life. Like I was, and, and everyone was expecting us to live a normal life. So I had to go to work every day. June had to go to work every day. Yeah. And we, we yeah. sort of had to perform and be ourselves. And that was really hard to do because of what we were, because of just this, this frankly crushing worry that we had about her. Worse, we had to treat her as normal. We, we would drop her off at daycare. And, and AB, I can't tell you how, um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for me to talk about now, like, you know, with, with us, she felt safe, she felt comfortable. Um, 
she gradually developed more more challenges she she it was harder for her to feed again we didn't know why but with us she she could sort of feed more regularly and sleep more regularly in her crib and and at daycare she she couldn't and because of i think the chaos you know the just chaos of being in daycare with other kids around her and um being in a less comfortable setting and so you know we would we had like an app through which the daycare would tell us oh you know your child just drank x ounces of milk and you know she's supposed to be drinking a certain amount of milk to grow and be healthy and we would get yeah. these notifications and it would be like yaya just had you know and i would be really excited oh good she ate and then it would be like half an ounce you know and which is like an eighth of what she's supposed to be having and so you know my we would take her to daycare monday through wednesday and my parents would watch her thursday and friday and we just got into this cycle of by sunday night you know i just i i could not bring her to daycare yeah. uh, the next day yeah. and and you know then sunday night i would ultimately finally i just say i'd call my mom and dad and say hey guys you know i i just can you take her on monday instead i i can and 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 you know uh, ab all while this is going on we don't know what to do about it like you know yeah. you're, we're her parents we just want to do something but we don't know what to do about it because we don't know why it's happening and um gosh not to you know another another part of that is that you know we start to maybe blame ourselves did i do something wrong did did oh. and, and i remember that you know this is the craziest <laughs> story but but you know when she was about maybe 5 months old 6 months old you know her her situation was really getting worse and and i remember one day under her crib i found a box and it was my parents for my birthday had given me like a a thing to like a, it's called a mushroom log like it's a piece of wood that you can grow mushrooms on you know just a weird birthday gift that that i would have that i would have enjoyed i like that kind of stuff and so but but i i just was terrified that oh my god did did she catch like some fungal infection from this oh my mushroom gosh. log and yeah. for maybe for for a day and a half i was convinced that's what it was i couldn't tell june i was you know i was just super guilty yeah. as a result and and that's just when you don't when you have this you don't know terrifying thing and you don't know your brain just goes to crazy places so that before you know before getting a diagnosis was just really really scary and hard time wow you know you say these things about taking her to daycare and how you just couldn't do it at some point. I mean, I had a fully healthy baby at 18 months and I remember taking him to a daycare once and he was fine, right? There's nothing wrong with him. But I would go there and I would just watch what was going on in that daycare center. And day after day, I would come back and he hadn't eaten. And I'd just be like, what is, what is happening? And the thought that someone might be hurting my child really scared me, right? even though none of that was happening, but I cannot even imagine that when you have a child who you can see that she's not well, you don't know what's wrong, you know in your heart of heart that nobody else can take care of her like you can, right? It, it just, it must, it must have been just a nightmare. Now, in that period, and I, and I know you, you did tell us you don't, you don't want us to feel sorry for you. And 
I hear that and I respect it, Ron. The thing that I think would be really great would be to, to understand just how you came to get that diagnosis and what was some of the things that you learned along the way, right? For other families who may be dealing with this, to just have hope and, and to know that someone else out there experienced something similar. Yeah, so, um, so getting a diagnosis is so important and, and, um, and it's so hard to do. You know, we, during those months, when that I was just talking about, you know, a lot of that time was spent honestly in labs, like waiting to, to get samples because we were, yeah. I mean, we, we would go to the doctor two times a week, three times a week, sometimes for a full visit, you know, to the neurologist once for an MRI. Um, but, but many times just to get a blood sample, a urine sample. Um, and, you know, we wanted so badly to know, but, you know, first of all, there, we only know, like, not every disease is diagnosable, and, and all, but more to the point, mm -hmm. in our case, it, a lot of diagnostic testing is required for this stuff, and, and, like, health, we have good health insurance, for which we're really, you know, lucky and grateful, but trying to get insurance to cover diagnostic testing is hard, and so, you know, at first we only had kind of the the low level tests available to us and everything would come back normal. And, um, and I remember once our geneticist telling me, you know, if things get worse, then we can do a whole exome sequencing, like a, a, a sophisticated genetic test where we read every, every single letter on Yaya's exome. And, and I didn't even think about that because I thought, you know, what things, things get worse, you know, that's, that's not going to happen. And, and, exactly. um, but, but no, we spent, you know, months in doctor's offices and, and actually the, really the, a big game changer was when my dad said, why don't you guys go see a gastroenterologist? I said, she, I mentioned she had been developing feeding issues. You know, I didn't even know what a gastroenterologist was, AB and, and our uh, Why would you? Yeah. Right, yeah. right. And, and right, most of us don't, young, you know, young parents or whatever. Our primary care provider never said, go see a gastro, you know, it wasn't her, but, but yeah, I was having more and more problems feeding. And my dad said, why don't you go see a gastro? And we said it to our physician and she said, why not go for it? And so we, um, so I called mm -hmm. and tried to schedule a swallow study and AB, they were like, uh, you know, sure, here's a date in two months that you can uh, have a swallow study. And I just, oh, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what to do. I just took it and I said, do you have anything sooner? No. Um, okay. Well, you know, over just day by day, things are getting more challenging. And so I, I called back and said, hey, look, we, we need to move this up and, um, you know, please. And so they moved it up to like four weeks out. And, you know, I just couldn't believe it. And, and um, you know, maybe a week later, uh, more and more trouble feeding. And I just called back and said, look, guys, this is really important. You need to get us in. And they said, oh, we can get you in tomorrow. And, and um, <laughs> you know, the, the lesson there, and, it, and it's, it shouldn't be this way, but the lesson is it's the burden is on us as parents 
to, yes. to fight. And, and so we fought through, you know, we want this test. The insurance uh, says, no, we won't pay for it. We appeal to the insurance and, you know, win an appeal and get a test and what have you. And, and it's, you know, it, it ends up taking a huge part of parents' lives and it's not right, but it, it just is uh, until we do something about it. And, and, and so in this time, right? Like life doesn't say, okay, I'm going to wait while you go through this whole thing. Like life is happening. Work is happening. You know, and, and that is incredibly hard. And I, I can't think of a way we can make the system better, right? Because you have to work to have insurance, but then if insurance doesn't cover what you need, then you're taking time off work to go figure out all this other stuff. It's like a crazy twisted circle. You know, insurance doesn't cover the full burden of nowhere near it of, of any of the mm -hmm. situation. And um, it's, yes, it's not, it's not a good system. And so that's why we have to, that's why we have to help people in this situation. Um, yeah. But, but, you know, the, the swallow study, just talking about the diagnosis, that was that was a big game changer and it just shows that you know that we we had to get there by ourselves we wouldn't have gotten there if it weren't for my dad making this comment but you know we went in for that swallow study and our you know i was at work that day i was expecting for just a quick test and and go back to work and and i met june and yaya and yaya's auntie who had taken her to the to the hospital for the test and you know we went in for the swallow study and and AB, we didn't go home for three weeks after that. Um, you know, she 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 failed the swallow study on on all consistencies of food, which indicated oh that she God. had serious problems swallowing. And and we were immediately admitted to the hospital because basically what they told us is there's no safe way for her to to eat, eat. because she's aspirating. You know, f food and drink is going into into her lungs and and um and yeah and and you know that ultimately um it's you know very sad memory for for me but but it changed the trajectory at least of of our understanding what was going on because you know remember that geneticist comment about if things get worse we can do a whole exome sequencing well yeah you know failing a swallow study in a three-week hospitalization sort of met that bar and and we were able to to then get an exome sequencing, which ultimately led to a diagnosis. Um, but I think you know that was really the that was the moment where okay, now our care team sort of understands that now now our care team and we are aligned. Like like we were already there in terms of our concern and worry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But now like the medical medical community is right there with us, and so we, so we were in the hospital for three weeks and. Um, she had a feeding tube put in, which actually was a huge help because it allowed her to, you know, she had had all these problems feeding and she started to, you know, once we got out of the hospital and, and she was able to feed, we, she started to gain weight. And, you know, so really I'm so grateful that it happened because it helped, it helped her so much over the, the next few months. But yeah, we, I mean, it was just really dumb luck that we were able to get to the hospital and get that test. And you know, get get things ultimately kind of figured out. And to move that appointment up, I keep going back to that appointment, right? Where they had said two months. And you've got to bring it back and bring it back and bring it back. 
And I don't even want to imagine what would have happened if you had just said, well, they said two months. And this little baby is just not able to eat. Now, this is going to be a little bit hard for you, but I'll just ask you to give me a picture of what daily life looks like. You've talked already about having to manage work and all of that, but what, what did daily life look like? Because I think when we talk about healthcare reform, right, sometimes it sounds like we're talking over here in the stratosphere. And when I think about the granularity of it and what's happening on the ground, it's really important for people to understand how things like this can really impact your daily life. It's not something that's happening over there. It's here. So for you and June, what was that like in terms of work, shopping, sleeping, just being married? Like how, what, what was that journey like in very practical terms? Yeah. So in practical terms, it, you know, just the pure nuts and bolts of it is, is, caring for a medically complicated child um, is requires a lot of work and um, and and I loved doing the work so again I don't I don't I'm, I don't ask anyone to feel sorry for us for this um, but but it speaks to your point of you know we so when we got home from the hospital Yaya had a feeding tube. We didn't yet know what her diagnosis was, so we didn't know what her trajectory was. That only that only came a couple months later. She oh, got wow. tested. So at that point, you didn't know. Yeah, I'm sorry for not making that clear. We we left the hospital. She had been tested. It takes a month or so for that test to be turned around, and in our case, it took almost two months because the results were so dire and and so you know th this lab had never tested for this before and so it took it took time but we so so we got home and really all we knew was that we had a medical medic you know we were still we didn't know we didn't have a timeline we didn't have a trajectory for her um but we just had to manage her care so you know lot, there were i i tell people this is like the most productive time of my life you know there was never a down moment except for some like, you know, we would eat like ice cream at night, you know, when we had a moment after bedtime and after yeah. you know, doing our work and stuff. But yeah. just the, you know, she had a feeding tube. She, we would have to change her feeding bags every four hours and, and then sort of prepare new ones for the next, um, for the next day. Medications, um, she had a wound from her surgery, surgery that we had to clean a couple times a day. And so there was just, you know, we were, we were, and Yaya was amazing. So she was an amazing little girl. Um, we, we loved her. She, we, we had lots of good time with her too. Um, and I, I don't want to gloss over that, but, you know, we, lots of time playing and reading and singing and cuddling and all this stuff, which, which was amazing. Um, so so just know that with what I'm about to say, but, but we were also really like, like nurses at home, you know, we were, we were doing just yeah. a lot of like June, what, you know, was really a nurse, you know, learned how to cut gauze and clean wound and, and everything. And we were um, injecting medication with syringes. We were giving her shots once a week. Um, and uh, so, so it was, so it was all of our time and and it was, 
between the time commitment and just being emotionally a wreck, um, I, I had, you know, like, like very little capacity for anything else. And so yeah. my work really, you know, everything else in my life sort of took a back seat, I think appropriately, but, but at some cost, you know, um, I, I was fortunate. I, I had amazing, I had a good job and I had great wow. colleagues who, you know, I, I went to the hospital thinking I'd be there for an hour and I was there for three weeks and, and I had amazing colleagues who sort of picked up the slack on stuff that I was working on. And I'm really grateful for that. I had a workplace that was patient with, with me. Um, and, and gave me, you know, said like, you take the space that you need to, to look after yeah. your family. And, and I know that that's not something everybody has. Everybody and, has. and, and, um, so, so I was fortunate and, and even still, you know, there, it was at great cost to us, you know, um, just in terms of, you know, we, we, it, it just made work very challenging and, and, um, and, you know, we weren't able to work a lot that year and which, which had consequences for us. And, yeah. but, but um, yeah, so the day-to-day -day life was just very, very, and, and, you know, when we got back from the hospital, I don't, I don't think we even left our apartment for like uh, probably really a month because it was, it was so much work to get the feeding tube disconnected from the wall. And, and, you know, I remember once we went to a coffee shop, the first time we went out, it was about a month after we got home from the hospital, we went to a coffee shop and we sort of had timed it perfectly because we had, you know, X minutes of battery power and we were going to go to the coffee shop well, on the feeding tube. And we were going to just go and we brought some toys and we were just going to have sort of try to have a normal time out. Yeah. And it started, yeah. it started raining and we said, no, 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 that's, we're, we're doing this anyway. And so, so we ran through the rain uh, to this coffee shop and, had a nice time, but, but we didn't, we didn't, day-to-day -day life just turned upside down yeah. because of all of the sort of work required just to manage our, our life together. Yeah. And Ron, we're, we're able to talk about the Yaya Foundation because ultimately, you lost your daughter. Um, this whole ordeal, like we said, was a defining moment for you. I feel like there's just I can sitting here. I can just I can I can I can almost feel like just not what you're going through because I cannot stand in your shoes. But I know it's really hard. So I I wouldn't even put you through walking us through how that was. But I do want to talk about one more thing about AI before we move to the foundation. There was something you said to me about her smile. And if you can share that, because when you and I talked about it, it sounded to me like one of the absolute highlights, right? And it just kept me going since we last spoke. It just made me so just remember the small things in life. So what were some of your just highlights with Yaya? Yeah, thanks Thanks for that question, Abby. That's, um, yeah, I mentioned that the first really what, what got our attention or made us worried initially was that she wasn't smiling when 
kids typically start to smile. And, and so we, you know, we, so we would try, we would try to make her smile, you know, from six weeks to four months, you know, we would just desperately try to make her smile to just make this problem go away. And, um, you know, boo and funny faces and, and everything. Um, just thinking like, okay, if we, if, if we can just make her smile, um, the problem is gone and everything is back to normal. And, 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 of, and she, she didn't. And so, you know, it was, it was a really hard time being a parent because we were so scared and we were like not getting the kind of sugar, if you will, in the form yeah. of smiles and giggles that sort of keep us going as parents of young children. And, and, um, you know, ultimately, and I want to talk about her diagnosis too, but, you know, after she got diagnosed and we got sort of settled and we understood what was going on, we could see that, that, you know, so she wasn't able to, her brain wasn't sending signals to make her muscles in her face move to make her lips curl up, but we could see in her eye that she was smiling, like she had smiley eyes. And, and actually, you know, three times, uh, she, her lips did curl up and, and we, and, and we saw a smile, you know, one day we came home from work and at that time she was no longer in daycare and, and, um, an amazing woman, uh, who her auntie would, would stay home with her. And, you know, she would, when we got home, she was so excited because she said, yeah, I was smiling. Yeah, I was smiling. And she told us that she was, uh, like sort of giving her raspberries under her arm and and that would make Yaya kind of giggle and smile and so show us show us and and so she did it and you're like sure enough you know a big smile for, from yeah. Yaya and, and we just yeah. um, we were so happy we immediately like took out the phones and videotaped it and I've you know I was just looking at it this morning a screen a freeze from from a video of her you know, with what for her is a big smile. And, and, you know, there, and there were two other times when once when I was at, away for a night at a friend's wedding and came back the next day, and she saw me and, and her lips curled up. Another time when I was playing with her and, you know, kind of just doing being upside down and doing push ups while she was lying on the floor. And, and she smiled when I kind of got to her face. And so, you know, so I really treasure, uh, I treasure those smiles. The fact that you remember very specifically three times that she smiled, right? And I'm just thinking, just today, can I count? Do I know how many times my son smiled today? I don't, right? Um, and I wanted you to share that because the first time you shared it with me, it was a real lesson in appreciating what we have because there's so much that we take for granted, right? And the idea that you would have given anything to see a smile, and that to this day, you remember the three times her, her lips curled up and she gave this smile, it's just, it's very humbling, it's very, um, it's very touching, but it's also just a reminder that we, nothing is promised, and we just really need to appreciate the things that we have, you know? Did I ever think when my son was six weeks old that he should or shouldn't be smiling? It's just this thing that we take for granted because 
you're hitting the milestone. So you're, you don't even know that it's a milestone because everything's fine. And so just thank you so much for sharing that, that, that story and for just being vulnerable with me. I, I, um, I, I cannot imagine what that was like for you. And I know you do want to talk about her diagnosis. And so I'll turn it back to you to walk us through that and then eventually into the foundation as well. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and amen, AB, to what, to everything you just said, you know, it's like, I didn't even know that this world existed, rare disease and, and that things like this could happen to a child. But, but after going through it, you know, with our, with, with Yaya's brother, you know, I, it was sort of flipped. Like I, if, if one, I'll talk about her diagnosis in a second, but essentially it's one pair of, it's one letter in the genome that is wrong, that is flipped, and, and it has this devastating effect. And, you know, we have billions of these in our genome, and if one of those yeah. can be wrong, it can, and I just, when we were having our son, I thought, you know, it's, there's no way it will be 100%. It, you know, it's, it would be impossible for it to be, and, and so I just didn't even contemplate how he could be healthy and and now as a but he is and and I appreciate it in a way that I just never would have and I and I do treasure uh, all of his smiles and his health in a way that I, you know we just don't know how to if we haven't been through an experience from this and I and I do hope that sort of a lesson from from experiences of families like mine for other people is to is to treasure our health treasure treasure each other's health do what we can to protect our own health and the health of our friends and neighbors but. So I just amen to everything you just said. Um, on, on when, when I hear you speak about just one thing, it was just one thing that was out of place or not where we were supposed to be. I think when we talk about the miracle of life and health, it really is magical, isn't it? Because to think that one thing can set you up on a different course it's, it's sobering, but more than anything else for me, it's, it's just magical. That time and time again, many of us come into the world with everything in place, right? And it's just, it's mind-blowing. We take it for granted. For sure. Yeah. And let me, maybe I'll tell about Yai's diagnosis and it will give some color around what we're talking about here with this mm -hmm. letter being out of place. But so when, when Yaya was in the hospital, she got a, a whole exome sequencing, which is where a lab you know, takes a cell from her body and literally decodes a portion of the genome, all of the A's and T's and G's and C's. And it turned out that one of those, a, a pair uh, on the exome had, a, you know, a, a, where there was supposed to be a C, for example, there was a G. And, and it was in a really important place in the exome and it's associated with this disease. So, yeah. so we, we went, you know, months went by and it was supposed to be a month turned into two and ultimately they called us into the geneticist's office and they I mean at this point I, I knew it was I had a feeling it was not going to be good and when they called to make the appointment they said you don't need to bring Yaya with you so so I knew that at that time it would be you know really bad news and and um but it, you know i didn't i didn't know how bad and it sort of just kept kept getting worse ab but we we went in and we met with our geneticist and genetic counselor 
and they told us, you know, Yaya has a disease. It's called 4-H leukodystrophy, polar three-related leukodystrophy. Just like we were saying at the beginning of our conversation, you know, what's what? What's that? Yeah. And yeah. and you know, only only a few hundred people have had had it at that time had been had been diagnosed with it, and our geneticists knew nothing about it. And it, basically, in the U.S. or in the world? In the world. In wow. the world. Yeah. That is rare. Um, it's extremely rare. Um, we, you know, we can talk about it. It's, I, I think it's not as rare as we all think. It's, it's hard to diagnose. And so I think, you know, there are probably okay. more cases than, than just uh, those reported cases. And, okay. um, um, but, you know, he, our geneticist didn't know anything about it and gave us like three medical journal articles to read. And, um, oh. you know, and, and so again, it's just that theme of like, we're on our own. Um, and, and they talked, you know, they, in talking about this disease with us, they had read those articles too. And they said, you know, um, when she reaches her teenage years, uh, this might happen. We, we sort of, you know, the trajectory of, of, of a typical person with this disease may be different from hers. And, but we didn't even, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know you could have a disease and, you know, maybe you have it one way yeah. and live a long time and maybe have it another way and don't. Yeah. And so. So we left that meeting devastated. And, um, and of, of course, I mean, we talked about the possible, I asked directly the question of, you know, could this be a fatal disease? And they, they said, yes, but you know, that we didn't leave with the expectation that Yaya's trajectory was what it was. Um, but what we did do was we read those articles and we connected with the person who had written them and, and a, a neurologist in Montreal at McGill University, who is regarded yeah. as kind of the world's expert on the disease. And within a, a week, I think we went to see her. It was the hardest trip of my, my life. And, and in fact, I mean, we talked, you, you asked about the day-to-day -day burden, you know, traveling, just leaving the house, but not to mention traveling with a ch complex child. We had a nebulizer, we had a blender because, you know, one of those like little food ninja blenders because we had to oh, make yeah. food for yeah. a feeding tube. We had a bag full of medicine, all this, a feeding tube. And I remember going through security, AB, and, and the TSA person asked us to open up the bag. And, and, and I just lost it. Like I was, I was doing all I could to just try to keep it together and, and I couldn't yeah. and I think this poor TSA person had no you know was just like oh my god um and felt terrible but as we just emptied out this bag of one medication after another and um ah, it, it was <laughs> hard and um but we, we went to see the neurologist in in Montreal an amazing person not only a brilliant person but but compassionate in a way that you know not not all of not all doctors are and gave us you know r really hard news which which was that um you know the yis case is probably is, is more severe than what we had read about in the article sort of typical 4-h and and in fact the the number of other people who had documented cases like hers was less than a handful and um and 
you know, she knew of the outcomes of those people and asked if we wanted to, and, and we didn't, but, um, but, you know, we knew, we knew that they were, that they were no longer living. We just, we didn't know wow. how or when or, or yeah. what have you. And, and so, yeah. um, so we just left that meeting, not knowing what Yaya's trajectory was, but, but knowing that it was serious and, um, and ultimately, um, you know, she, she passed away only a few months later. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful for that, for that knowledge of, uh, you know, and, and, um, but, but it was, yeah. So that, that meeting was really the first time when we, and, and I think, yeah, it was almost nine months old at that time. That was really the first time that we understood really what we were dealing with. Nine months old. And me listening to it, it sounds like five years long. And you experiencing it, did, did you just feel like you had gone through a decade in nine months? I mean, it just seems like a lot. Yeah, a lot. You know, I, so that's a nice, A.B., that's a nice way to put it. Um, you know, in terms of, in terms of, I feel like we went through a decade of not only, you know, good and bad in, in a year. Um, we you know, all of this stuff was, was just devastating. And, and, um, you know, you can probably see that it's hard for me to talk about now. And, and, you know, you should have seen me then it was, it was devastating for our family and, and, and of course for, for Yaya. And, um, but we had also amazing time together as a family, like yeah. to your point about appreciating, you know, we, we appreciated every day we had with Yaya. We, um, I think we we all gave each other all of ourselves, and, and she to us. You know, she was an amazing daughter. Um, our families were amazing. My parents, sisters, June's parents, um, even uncles, aunts. You know, the, it was just such rich time together. Um, so yeah, there was a lot packed into that year. Yeah, and. So Yaya passed and you had a chance to grieve and it's the kind of grief that I know just can, can just go on. It's, it, there's no stopping point, right? When you, when you lose a child, you don't just wake up one day and it's done, right? And, 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 and I, I shared this with you um, after I lost my twins and it, it's not the same in that, you know, they never, they never lived, but, but it, it just, it stays with you. And I'm keen to understand from you where you got the strength, the passion, the, just the let's do it, right? To go start this foundation. Um, because I think for a lot of people, something like this will just knock you out, right? And you decided, I don't want other people to go through what we went through and we've got to do something about it. So tell me a little bit about that part of the journey. Sure. Yeah. So AB, like, you know, we've talked about this. I'm, I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss too. And, and, you know, there's no, there's no comparing any of this stuff, but, but you suffered a, a really tremendous loss. And I, you know, I, empathize with you and and i'm sorry for your loss um and yeah and you know and thank you to you for sharing with me about it but um 
yeah, the you know what I don't I didn't realize it. I think at the beginning after Yaya died, it probably took me a couple of years to realize it. But um, grief is a grief is a really powerful source of energy. Um, and in mm -hmm. fact, there's a there's another mom of um, of a child. There's another mom in the leukodystrophy space of a related disease to ours that says. She, this is an amazing woman uh, who says grief is a superpower. And, you know, okay. I don't, I wouldn't, yeah. I, I wouldn't, but when she said that, that's when I sort of understood that gr grief is a tremendous source of energy and, and it can be, you know, it doesn't have to be a superpower. It can be really destructive. Um, yeah. But if, if, if it's, I think, channeled, it can be really con constructive and productive. And, you know, when Yaya was alive, we and we got her diagnosis we you know the first thing we did was or one of the first things we did was look for like the the american cancer society of 4-h leukodystrophy you know the big organized well-funded patient group that was out there educating families advocating on our behalf supporting research providing hope that kids with this disease would would have answers one day and you know the the only we found a golf tournament in Cleveland, a, a amazing family, uh, amazing parents of a child with the same disease. Um, but you know, a pretty grassroots kind of effort. You know, they they put a yeah. ton of effort into into putting on a golf tournament every summer and raising some money and then giving it to a lab to support research. And you know, one when when these when the doctors would tell us there's nothing we can do. You know, I just I didn't know that there, that that was a thing. I just didn't know that a kid could have a disease, and there's just no, we don't know. We don't know what will happen. We don't have anything we can throw at it. And and I I just I just wanted to to change that. You know, I I, um, I, I don't want to accept that as a as an answer for for kids like Yaya. And and so we you know we decided that we would we would start that hopefully, you know, well-organized, well-funded patient group. And so we reached out, we found that family on Facebook and um, they're, they were amazing. They are amazing. They're on our board now. We work together with them very closely. Um, and, and we found another family in Oregon that had a, has a young child who, who has the disease and have done their own fundraising to support research. Yeah. And, and we decided, Hey, let's, you know, let's, join up here let's work together um, yeah. if we work together the the whole will be greater than the sum of the parts and and we formed the Aya foundation and and it, and it's been incredible you know 18 months ago there was really no organized patient effort in 4-H leukodystrophy um, now 18 months later we're developing a collaborative research network of researchers and clinicians from across the world who wow. who have expertise areas that can that can you know bring to bear on on this disease and and we're bringing them together to work together and and we about six months ago received an amazing grant from the Chan Zuckerberg initiative it's called a rare as one grant and you know Chan Zuckerberg initiative mm -hmm. is amazing because they they've decided hey rare disease you know a lot of people look at diseases like ours and say oh it's only a few hundred people but but really rare disease as a category, you know, there are 7,000 rare diseases 
And some of them affect only a few hundred people. Some of them affect some more, some of them less. But and if you say, you know, well, it's only a few hundred people, so we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah. You're actually saying millions of people are going to be left out because rare disease as a category is, is significant. And yeah. what, what Chan Zuckerberg Initiative does is they, they've recognized that and they've put together a really innovative funding model. And, and we were privileged to receive a grant from them. Uh, uh, six months ago and so we oh, um, congratulations thank That's you awesome. thank, you. <laughs> thank you thank you yeah so in in a short time we've we've really accomplished a lot we've gotten this research network together we brought you know over half a million new dollars into into our disease area that we're going to be investing in research that we hope is going to really change the trajectory for our kids with with we we hope and think a lot more to come I mean, ju just your body language has changed, race. Like, there's this passion and excitement around the work. And just for every parent who unfortunately is in this situation, I'm so thankful that, you know, the AI Foundation, you and your co-founders are doing something about it because you're absolutely right. If you think about them as individual diseases, then it seems small, right? People would have the argument, well, let's focus our resources to the cancers of the world and HIV and all of this. But it is a significant number. And I was doing some research. And as you can see, I'm in a zebra striped type dress. Lovely. And I brought this with me because I found out, I don't know if you know this, I found out that zebra is the emblem of rare diseases because what i was trying to do was find out you know we have the pink for can breast cancer and red for i think it's heart disease and hiv so i was like is there something because once you have a color my theory is once you have a color people are starting to recognize it for what it is and it needs attention and it needs you know people, people need to be talking about it and engaged so when i found it i was like okay i wear my little zebra dress in solidarity and i'll bring my son's little zebra from i think we got this in south africa and every time i see this i will remember yaya by it so um just i just wanted to share that with you and to thank you so much for sharing your story with me and my mother talk family now if people wanted to learn more about the foundation or to follow the foundation or you where can they find the foundation where can they give donations and where can they find out more about 4-H how do you say that I, i've been Leuco practicing and i can't get it right yeah yeah leukodystrophy 4-H leukodystrophy yeah. yeah i got it yeah, thank you, AB. No, so what you know, what we are trying to do is build a global community. This is a global disease. It affects kids everywhere, and it's going to take a global effort to do something about it. And so, I invite people all over the world to to learn about us and and our, what we're trying to do and and how we're trying to help. Uh, you can do that by going to our website, which is Yaya Foundation or HL org. And, and check us out. You can also follow us on Twitter at Yaya4HL and Facebook. And um, we invite you to check us out. Uh, we invite you to support. Uh, supporting research is expensive and, and so uh, raising money to support it is a really important part of what we do. 
and and we also just uh, invite you to to help share our story and raise awareness um, so that you know you and your friends and family will will just be aware of what families like ours and kids like Yaya go through and and hopefully think of ways that um, you can support us. Yeah, so I will share all the contact information below. I do want to go back to a few things you said as we close. You talked about Yaya's smile, the three times remember her smiley, and I really want the audience to remember that in a bit to say we've got to enjoy the small things in life. It is so important. There's so much craziness we're in the world right now, and sometimes we just need to come back to base a little bit and say thank you for the smiles, thank you for the hugs, thank you for the little things that we take for granted, which families like yours, unfortunately, did not get as much as you would have liked. I also just want to thank you for sharing your story, Ron. I don't think, I mean, I can say, sitting here, I know this was really hard for you, but on behalf of everyone who may be listening to you going through the same thing, thank you. Because sometimes I think there is just affirmation and comfort in hearing people talk about something you're going through and you're just sitting there going, thank God someone understands. So thank you for being that voice and thank you for all the work you continue to do. Thank you, AB. Thanks for, thanks for the opportunity to share our story. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate Absolutely. your just attention to, to our part of the world. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care, Ron. And my love to you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I don't know about you. But Yaya's story was one of the most difficult I've covered to date as producer and host of Mama Talk Talks A Different Take. For more information, or if you want to donate to the foundation, visit www.yayafoundation4hl.org. Next week, catch my chat with guest Jessica Joan Richards. We talk weight body shaming in the workplace and that one linkedin post that went crazy viral this is a sneak preview of jesse's defining moment what kind of things would people say or do that would make you feel like i don't belong not because i'm filipino or a woman but because of my weight weight is seen as such a massive thing um in society nowadays and you are very much judged for having extra weight or not enough weight and people always seem to be interested in whether you're eating too much or you're exercising too much and it becomes that conversation it almost is as if the moment you step into a room and you are very clearly overweight it's like this conversation becomes open for everybody to think about what you should be doing to help yourself mm -hmm. and to think about what you should be eating how does that feel Right. We've talked about the stuff that happened here. Right. <laughs> I know. You want to know what my heart. Yeah. It hurts so much. It's a really horrible thing. And if you allow me to be raw and I'm already feeling myself emotional. <laughs> I have been hiding for so long until this interview, I have been hiding behind my weight because I feel personally like I'm going to be judged for it anyway so let them judge and I will just be this and I will accept life for how it's how life is being given to me but actually now ever since that post I'm like actually no 
because there are things that I am I am happy with and there's things that I can change and that is on my turn and you're being discriminated against it hurts and you don't want it to be personal but it is really personal